Hi, everyone. Welcome back to But What Will People Say? I'm your host, Disha Mazeppa, and this is a podcast about South Asian interracial relationships and so much more. Hi, guys. So quick announcement before we get started today. We are moving the new episode drops to Wednesdays instead of Tuesdays. So starting next week, new episodes are going to drop every Wednesday because life and work changes and schedule changes. So yeah, Wednesdays. The other announcement is Mother's Day is coming up very soon, guys. So if you want customized gifts or something special made for mom, make sure you reach out to me via Disha Mazeppa Designs. You can reach out via Etsy or Instagram. Just shoot me a message um, and we can get started on creating something special for mom before her special day. So now is a good time to reach out if you want anything customized or special made for mom. Okay. Now to today's guest. My guest this week is Lana Patel. She is a model. She's a singer. She's a makeup artist. And she's also a trans woman. And she shares pretty much her whole journey, her whole story from being a child and realizing that she was born in the wrong body to her transition to finding true love and what that was like and being more than just a fetish or an experiment, which is how society generally portrays members of the trans community. Lana is really raw. She's really open. She uses her Instagram platform to, you know, share even more about her experience. So if this episode resonates with you, definitely find her on Instagram and give her a follow. Everything's in the show notes. You know where to find it all, guys. So let's get to it. everyone. Welcome back. We're here with Lana. I know some of you guys probably know her from Instagram, but we just recently connected. So it's been super fun getting to know you a little bit. Can you tell the people listening a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This is definitely an honor. Um, So for those who know me or may not know me, I think um, a lot of the world got to know me through social media, and I think that's a testament to how powerful it is and how beautiful it is and how we're able to kind of build community. Um, but I'm Lana Patel. I identify as a Afro-Indo-Caribbean uh, trans woman or a woman of trans experience, and um, I was born and raised to immigrant parents in New York City. Um, I moved to Florida when I was 13 and came out um, at the time as gay at 12. Definitely didn't go well with my family, but um, started my transition at 17. And when I was 18, I actually had a conversation with my aunt um, for my birthday because her birthday was always a day before mine. And we would always like celebrate our birthdays together and we always have joint birthday parties um we were having a conversation and I was a year in transition and she reminded me of a time when I came out to her when I was three years old and we were playing house and I told her I was a girl and it was like a full circle moment because here I am at 18 years old transitioning being the woman that I want to become um and being the woman that I, I always was, but I didn't have the physicality 
And so I feel like I always knew who I was and what I wanted. I just lived in a world and in a culture that didn't believe um, in LGBT community, didn't believe um, in the idea of people transitioning or having gender dysphoria. But all of those situations in the past kind of helped me to shape what social media looked like for me. And I came out to the world in 2017 on Instagram. And since then, I've been able to use that platform to tell my story and to help um, spread the word on the experience of trans people. Um, And I get to work um, within the realm of LGBTQ healthcare and speak on disparities within the community. And it's just been an incredible journey. So yeah, a little bit about me. (laughs) So when did you know that you were different from the other kids around you? Because I feel like everyone in the LGBTQ community has that moment where they're like, oh, I'm not like the other kids. Yeah, um, I feel like I always knew I was a girl. It was just be, I remember being a little kid and playing with the girls and wanting Barbie and dolls and seeing the way that girls were being dressed and seeing the way that I was being dressed. And the fact that I was getting haircuts. So I, between like three to five, I think it was obvious that I was being groomed different than girls. And I was receiving boy toys and boy clothes. And I was being punished for liking girl things. I was being punished for being feminine. And to me, it was just so bizarre. Like I started to pick up that my family and my, uh, especially my parents, that it was wrong to like girl things or to like to be feminine or to want dolls. Um, But it just was innate. Like I never had a moment where I, I wanted boy toys or boy clothes over girl things. Like I've always just wanted those things. And, um, I think as far as sexuality, um, when I was 12, I realized, okay, I was assigned male at birth. Clearly I have male anatomy and, um, I find other boys attractive. And that was that light bulb moment. So It was an awakening, but it was also very daunting because I realized I am the minority here. And not only do I like boys, but I want to be a girl. And I don't know how to make that happen. But I do know that gay, uh, the gay aspect or the the sexual orientation aspect was something that was a little bit more attainable um, because I knew that there were gay people that existed. Um, and I knew I could live a life, um, of authenticity that way. But I also knew that 
I would never feel comfortable as a gay male. Um, but I think that's when I had that moment of like, I'm not like the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you explain? Because I know there's a lot of people listening that maybe don't understand like all the different like categories or I guess labels you could put on it. Mm-hmm. Um, like the difference between being gay, being a transgender individual, and then also like people who just prefer to cross dress and mm-hmm. identify I don't I also myself don't know all the like different subcategories. Can you okay. kind of dissect that a little bit for us? Yeah, definitely. So um there's sexual orientation. Sexual orientation I normally say is who you are attracted to. They used to say who you go to bed with. So with sexual orientation, um that is determined by uh the gender that you find attractive, whether it's romantic or sexual. Um, for myself, I always have been attracted to men and masculine energy, masculine people. Um, yeah, boys, men, like masculinity was always something that I found attractive. Um, so with sexual orientation, you have straight, of course, heterosexual, gay, um, generally is a term for someone who is attracted to someone of the same gender, um, or, uh, the same sex, biological sex, but generally gender, um, lesbian, which is a term same as gay, but it's, um, specific for women who are attracted to women. Then there's bisexual. Bisexual is someone who's attracted to both genders. Um, And there's another term called pansexual. These are folks who are attracted to people across the gambit. Like there's, um, they're not attracted to the gender. It's just the person. I think there's lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual. Those are the, the popular um, sexual orientations. Now, <clears throat> gender identity and gender expression. So you talk about cross-dressing. Cross-dressing would be under gender expression, where you express yourself through clothing, through mannerisms, grooming, etc. Um, however you see fit, however it feels most comfortable for you. And then gender identity is how you internally feel on the inside. And so you can be cisgender, you can be transgender, you can be gender nonconforming or non-binary. For myself, I was assigned male at birth, but I never felt male. I never felt like a boy. I always felt like a girl. There was never a moment of, as much as people try to punish me for being feminine and tell me I'm not a girl... I always knew I was a girl and I knew that I did not want to grow up to be a man. And that's why I made this decision to transition at 17. Um, Yeah. So how did you then explain all of this to your family? Because you were pretty young when you probably let them know this is how Mm -hmm. you felt. How does someone so young explain how they're feeling? Because this even to me being at 27 sounds very complicated and like especially if you're going through it yeah definitely um 
you know, I think that my family always knew I was different. But I also think that my family thought, okay, I'm not like the other kids, especially the other boys, but I'm probably going to grow out of it. Like, it's probably going to be a phase, you know, and I would talk to my stepdad and he would, growing up, he would joke and he would always be like, do you want to be a girl? And I wanted so bad to say, yes, I do. You know, and I, I, I always wondered what would have happened if I gave in and I told him, yes, would he have allowed me to do that? My stepfather, I feel like he he was just kind of joking around with it. But there was so many moments where I knew being a part of this community was wrong to the family and to the culture. And when I was probably about nine years old, my father was, um, my stepfather was watching one of those talk shows. I think it was Jenny Jones. And there was a gay couple on there. There were two gay men. And my stepfather said that they deserve to burn in hell. This is what I'm trying to protect you and your brother from. And my biological father was always very binary when it came to gender identity and gender expression. He felt that boys should be masculine. They're going to grow up to be men. Girls can be feminine. They're going to grow up to be women. And there was no opportunity for ambiguity. There was no chance to be fluid with that. And so since I was assigned male at birth, he expected me to be masculine. He wanted me to be like him. And that time never came. Like I never associated with masculinity or maleness. Um... So at 12 years old, I came out and I finally told them because it was just eating away at me. I remember watching this show called Queer as Folk on Showtime. Um, Definitely shouldn't have been watching it at the time because it was like TVMA. But here I am, this, you know, 11 and 12 year old child watching this show for adults. But that was the awakening for me. That was where things clicked when I realized I'm like these people. Mm-hmm. The LGBT community is where I belong. And so when I figured that out, I fell into a depression because it's one thing to know the information. It's another thing to come out and have to tell your family. And I always feared being ostracized. I always feared being rejected. And I knew that my family probably would not accept me. So I held on to it for some time. And my family could see there was a change. Like I I was becoming, I was always very quiet, but I became very withdrawn. And I would write in my journal. And that was like my best friend. I didn't really have anyone to tell this to. So I would just write in the journal. And I was just sad. Like, I felt like I don't know what to do with this information because culturally, you know, my mom, my dad are from the Caribbean, my stepdad's from the Caribbean, and they believe in honor killings and they're okay with someone killing someone based off of their sexual orientation. And I knew, like, if I was born and raised in the Caribbean, I would 
probably be killed at that moment that I came out. And so it terrified me because I was like, how do I move forward with this? So it was September 2001. 9-11 just happened. And we just started school in New York. I'm sure you're aware on the East Coast. We started yeah. school in September. Um, so school just started. And I was in eighth grade. And my English teacher asked us to write a essay about what we did that summer. For some reason, I felt compelled to tell her exactly what I was doing that summer. I had this awakening. I had this moment of knowing myself. And so I came out to her in that letter. And she was the very first person I ever told that I was gay. And you know, I told, I, growing up was always a target for bullies. Kids always picked on me. I was always really small, underweight, always very petite. And the kids would always pick on me, always beat me up. I always had bullies. I would constantly be dealing with um, kids that just were mean to me. And they would have these horrible, um, gay slurs that they would use against me. And I wrote in the letter and I was like, you know, these kids call me all of these horrible things, but it's true. Like, this is how I feel and who I am. Like, I am these things. I'm gay. And we had a bomb threat at the school. We had a lot, unfortunately. Um, And so we had to take... The evacuation drill. drill. Yes, we did the evacuation drill. There we go. So we're walking around the uh, school and my teacher comes up to me and she said, I read your letter. What you said was very serious. Did you mean what you said? I said, yeah. She said, okay. I rent my basement to a nurse that works with the LGBT community, especially primarily youth. I want to get you connected and get you some resources. And I also want to get you connected to the school counselor. And she became my biggest advocate. And she helped me um, to start seeing a counselor and talking about my feelings and coming out. And she helped me to come out to my mother. And my mother was the first person I told. Um, And she then told the family, definitely did not go well. (laughs) Um, And it just kind of started this whole war within my house, pretty much. Um, You know, my stepfather felt like, Maybe I could be fixed with religion. Um, His mother, we had a conversation once. I started wearing my mom's perfume. And I started to express, I started to experiment with expression. I loved femininity. Like, I loved perfume. I loved makeup. I loved tight clothing. Like, everything, right? And so here I have this moment. I'm using my mom's lotion with glitter body spray, putting on perfume. I'm slowly starting to like get into a feminine vibe. And I remember one day I was at my stepdad's mom's house, uh, my grandmother, and we were having dinner and she smelled the perfume and she said, I don't want a he, she in my family. And so there was just always like these little nuggets 
of truth where I knew that this wasn't acceptable to these people. Um, but I continued anyway. And what I used to do is my mom had this cabinet, um, or pantry with all these toiletry items that she never used because all of the toiletry things she would use were like on her vanity in her bedroom, um, or in the bathroom. So I would just go in there and collect stuff and I would start using it and I would hide them. I would put them under my pillow. I'd put them in my backpack and they would always find them, take them back. So it was like this constant tug of war. We're always constantly going at it. <clears throat> and I wanted to know what it, it was like to be a woman. So I would take her like pads and stuff. And I'm like, I, I, I want to have a period. I want to go through this because at that time at 12 and 13, I was going through a male puberty. And so I think that's when things triggered as well. And I knew I'm really a girl because I knew what a male puberty was and I knew what a female puberty was. And I was definitely not having a female puberty. I was not having a period. I was not growing breasts. I was not getting hips. Like I shot from five foot to five, seven. My voice got deeper. I got an Adam's apple. My hands, my feet were getting bigger. Um, you know, my face went from being round to square. There were so many things. It was so dysphoric for me. Like, Prior to um, prior to adolescence, prior to puberty hitting, because I was so small, I and I looked very androgynous. I could pass for a girl. People always assumed I was a girl, and that for me was so affirming. You know, it was people wouldn't know I was a boy until my parents told them, "Oh, that's a boy." And so for me, that really affirmed my identity, and I loved being able to go into the world and be presumed female. Puberty hits and I can no longer pass as a girl anymore. Like I clearly look and I'm starting to sound like a man and I'm looking in the mirror and I don't recognize that person. There was this incongruency, this disconnect and it was really tough. And knowing what, the difference between male puberty and female puberty and knowing that my body was doing the opposite of what I thought I was going to do. And even then looking back, I mean, of course I'm not going to get a period because I wasn't born with, you know, those organs, but I still was hopeful. And so I was living in a nightmare. Like my body was betraying me and I just wanted out. I wanted to just press rewind and go back and like fix this. But I knew there was no way to fix it going back in time. I just had to continue to progress and go through the trans experience. But I also didn't know how to do that at 12 years old. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know if that was even possible. And I also feared my family and, and what they would do, you know, and I would fantasize of joining the witness protection program and moving to the Midwest and faking my death and starting a whole new life because I was like, there's no way my family is going to allow me to live authentically. Yeah, that sounds devastating. Like, it feels like you hit a point where you wanted to claw yourself out of your own body. 
mm-hmm. into like a new shell. And that's that's so like heartbreaking to feel like like your body is betraying you. Um and like you said, we're raised in this, you know, when you're a kid, when you're 12 years old, I remember like you're raised in this bubble that your entire reality of the world is built by your family and your parents. So like you believe everything they say and you think, well, my parents said this is good and this is bad. This is right and this is wrong. And that every all the other grownups agree, right? Everybody else is just like that. And it's usually when you get for most people into high school and college where we might be exposed outside of that bubble and make our own friends and meet our own people and realize like, oh, wait, not everyone thinks like this. Or for you on that Showtime show, finally seeing like, oh, this is this is what I want, this is who I am. Um, and for so many of us who are raised in like a really kind of sheltered environment, it's not until we break out of it that we find like, oh, these these are my people or like this is the word I was looking for. Um, where, when do you hit a point where you feel, so you went through this transition. When did you begin your transition? Yeah, so for me, my transition started when I was um, 17. Actually, no, it was a little bit before that. So at 16, I decided to start um, the process of um, trying to find hormones because I've been doing so much research. I knew at that point how to medically transition, what was needed. And every free moment of my time, I was watching Discovery Health, TLC. I would watch so many documentaries on trans people. I would watch surgeries like and discovery health. They used to show you from start to finish. I remember like seeing people cut up, seeing all types of interesting stories. And I would want to, I wanted to be a surgeon when I was younger because I was so fascinated. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. And I remember seeing people on hormones and seeing what happened to their bodies and knowing that it's possible to, be male, but take female hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and transition to change your body. And so at 16, I decided to start asking for hormones because um, I was suffering from really bad acne. And I was trying to find a loophole to getting on hormones because I'd been prescribed topical treatment. It was not working. It was not helping. Um, And I just was frustrated. So in one sense, I wanted them for the acne. But in another, I knew it was a gateway to start my transition. So I went to three different doctors asking for birth control. I wanted hormones because I wanted to start my transition, but I didn't want to tell them that. And I just wanted to use the excuse of acne. They all turned me away. They said, no, here's another prescription for Retin-A, different, you know, the usual topical gels and creams. Um, so my last doctor was my family practitioner. And I just basically told her, I want to start to medically transition female. And she told me, 
She does not feel comfortable prescribing female hormones to a 16-year-old boy. She prescribes estrogen to her female patients who um, are going through menopause or need hormone replacement therapy. Maybe I can go to Miami or Tampa where they do that there. And she left the conversation there. And so at this time, I was 16, year old, 16 years old, living in Polk County, Florida. Um, and for those who don't know, if a lot of people don't know what Polk County is or where it is. It's central uh, Florida. It is the largest county, uh, but it is very conservative. Extremely conservative. And it was about five hours from Miami. So at 16 years old, I didn't have a car. I had didn't have the means to jump in my car or jump in a car and travel to Miami and figure out where to go get hormones. I didn't have a name, didn't have a doctor, a facility. But I knew that I wanted to start this journey. And so I got online and I started researching and um, looking around, I ended up finding the world of uh, black market hormones. And so I started my transition self-medicating. Um, so at 17 years old, I was taking black market hormones in secrecy. Um, my family had no idea I was doing this. And for a year, I went by um, under the radar, taking hormones, going through a medical transition, and no one knew. <clears throat> I lived with my grandparents at this time. My my mom and my stepdad lived in New York. Um, my dad and my stepmom, I think they were in the Carolinas. But I never really had a good relationship with my biological father. And we haven't seen each other since I was 13. Um, and he basically said he didn't want to see me anymore, like, at 13, because I was still feminine. Like, he, I was not the son he wanted. Um... And so when the next summer came around, um, I went to New York to see my parents for like two weeks and they immediately realized something was different. Like they could see, like I had been on hormones for like six, seven months and that was enough progress for them to like immediately see something was different. And um, that's how my family found out I was transitioning. Did not go over uh, over very well. It, um, I had a sit-down conversation with my mom and my stepdad, and they were just like, you know, are you wearing a bra? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, why does it look like you have breasts? And I said, because I do. And they're like, how did you get breasts? And, you know, I said, from hormones. And my stepdad is like, well, how do you get rid of them? And I'm like, do surgery and I'm not having surgery. This is who I am. And, um, my stepdad thought I was, they both of them thought I was crazy, but my stepdad felt like I was doing it for the male gaze for men's attention. And I told him, no, I would never go through this process and journey for a man. And my mom thought I was doing it for attention. My mom asked me if I was hearing voices, and I said, no, mom, I'm trans. I'm not schizophrenic. Um, my dad, my stepdad, basically said that he's not guaranteed to go to heaven, but I'm saying that I, I'm not going because I'm this person. I'm doing this. And um, 
They thought I was crazy because I said, I'm not going to stop my transition. I'd rather be homeless and struggle than to live another day in my life as a boy living a lie. And they felt like you're so smart. You're so inquisitive. You're in school. You want to be a psychiatrist. Wait the 10 years, get your degree, get your career. And if you want to play on the side, then that's your business. I told them, I'm going to go through with this. And um, this was a Friday. By Tuesday, I found myself in the backyard. And um, our neighbor, or like childhood, my childhood barber was at the house. And I found all my, he ended up coming over and shaving my head bald, basically. Um, my stepdad called him to give me a haircut. I'd been growing my hair out for a year. And um, in that instant, all of it was gone. I was sitting in the backyard and I had clippers to my head and all of my hair was falling on the floor. And my cousin sat across from me and laughed. And she said, you're probably going to pick your hair up and glue it back on your head. And I remember grabbing the hair off the ground, putting it in a bag, and I put this bonnet on. And I felt so depleted. I felt, um, I don't know, I felt, uh, it was like a violent feeling. Like I felt like someone had. uh, Almost like stripped away the identity. Stripped away. Yeah, they assaulted me. And um, my parents came home and my stepdad sees my hair, my mom, and they're like, oh, it looks great. So my stepdad was a smoker and he had a packet of Newport cigarettes and he handed me the packet and he said, you made a sacrifice today. So I'm going to make one too. Here, you can throw away my cigarettes. And I was so insulted. I could not believe that he equated my gender identity to smoking cigarettes. I was like, how dare you? Like, this is who I am as a person. This is not a sacrifice. You smoking cigarettes is not the same as me transitioning to be a woman. And so I didn't talk to them for a few months and it was some time before, you know, things came together. We're now in a great place, you know, but my stepdad didn't come around for another, he didn't fully embrace me until 2013. We had this conversation in 2007 my mom didn't come around until 2018, December 2018. Um, my grandparents, who I lived with, they came around in 2014. But it took a lot um, for my family to kind of embrace it and accept it. And I think for them, <clears throat> because I'd hit a, a wall, I, they backed me into a corner where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I ended up running away from home. Um, I moved five hours north. I went to Florida State University. I ended up being self-sufficient, living on my own, um, paying my way through school, getting like scholarships and grants, uh, financial aid. And I remember them having a conversation with my grandmother and she was just like, what's going on? Like, why are you coming home? Like, what, you know? And I told her, I'm living my life authentically. That's it. I cannot go back. I refuse to pretend because at that time they were forcing me to get haircuts every month, 
dressed as a boy and I had to take my hormones in secrecy. Like they wanted me to completely stop my transition. And I said, I'd rather be dead than to live a lie. Like I can't do this anymore. And I remember talking to my best friend and I was plotting and scheming my escape. I told her I'm leaving one or two ways. Either I'm getting on a bus to go to Tallahassee to start my life over. Or I'm leaving in a hearse to be put six feet under the ground. It's one or the other, but it's do or die. I cannot, if I don't succeed, if I don't get out, I'm gone. Like I didn't want to live anymore. So I think it was that moment when my family finally realized, okay, we need to accept this because I'm willing to take my life if I am forced to live like this another day. And that was that transformative moment for them. And they realized they'd rather have me in totality and living my life, being authentic to myself, being happy, than, you know, being gone, being dead, because they've kept forcing me into a life that was not mine. Yeah. And then through this journey, when when did you start finally feeling like this is who I wanted to be? Like, when did you, I don't know if it was like look in the mirror or just like reflect on your life, decide like, I'm finally here. Like, I'm finally my authentic and true self that I really have always wanted to be? Um, honestly, I say it's a journey. It's a process. Um, I'm still working on it. Honestly, I'm still figuring it out. I don't, there's still things I want to do. Um, and things I want to change. So, yeah, I, I definitely feel I'm a lot closer to where I want to be, but I'm not at the finish line yet. And I think transition is a lifelong journey. I think there'll always be some time when you're like, well, maybe I can do this or that, touch this up or that. Um, yeah, so I'm not done yet, but I, I feel a lot more complete than I used to. Um, I get to live a life that's authentic to myself, to me. I get to go out into the world um, as a woman. I, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge that I have passing privilege that people see me and assume I'm a cis woman. Um, I don't get questions or stares. And that's a wonderful thing for me. That's really affirming for me. But there's still things I want to fix and do and improve on. And how did you, because, you know, we talked about this briefly before we started recording that, like, you go through all of this hurt, right, of the things people say to you or without knowing how you felt the things that they said but eventually you have to hit a point where, like you said, your parents or your stepdad and your mom came around, your grandparents came around. But you also have it's not just about them coming around. It's when are you ready to sort of like forgive or let go? Like, how did you come around to that? Yeah, that was a long journey. 
And I had to really work on forgiveness, but first and foremost for myself. And I had to accept the things that I'd been through, the hardships, and understand that, you know, my family was coming out of a place of convoluted love, but it was love. They tried to do the best that they could because, you know, they thought they were raising a boy. They thought it was a, a, a male child. And um, I was the first out LGBT member of my family. They, within the history of our families, have never had someone who was part of, they, that ever came out and said this, that lived this. So it was an anomaly for them. They didn't understand. And they just did what culturally they were taught to do, you know? And so I had to realize that and and really work on myself to start to get to a point where I could forgive them for all of the pain and the turmoil and the hardships that they put me through. Um but I'm glad that I, I went through that process and it took some therapy. It took some crying and, and writing and, you know, finding artistic outlets. Um, and social media honestly was how my mother even came around. It was, you know, I'd been on social media for a good year at that time out as a trans woman talking about my experience. And my mother woke up the middle of the night. I remember it was midnight in December. And she was, it was three o'clock her time. She woke up randomly, went to the bathroom, had her phone, got on Instagram. One of my posts showed up and she started going through my feed and looking at my posts. And she saw my story and my journey and she just broke down and started crying hysterically. And she felt um, so much remorse for being that roadblock in my life and for ne- for not coming around and for not accepting me and embracing me and not having a relationship with me. I mean, my mother and I were always estranged from the day I was born, but transition put this wedge between us where we just were on opposite sides. And, you know, she finally came around and, and now we're working um, on a relationship, but you know, there's a lot of things that happened in the past. I mean, I went through conversion therapy and my mother was paying for it. And my family wanted so bad for me to be normal. And they put me through hell, you know, but I had to get to a place where I was like, you know, it was very, it was very destructive. But I also understand that, like I said, it was coming from a place of them wanting the best for me, them doing what they thought was right. It wasn't right, but they they didn't know any better. They'd never had examples. They didn't know other, you know, LGBT people um, or kids or family members. Yeah. And I find for a lot of parents, especially South Asian parents, like, no matter you know who your child is all they want to do is protect you from the world Mm -hmm. around you and you know from a parent's perspective it must just seem like if my child can just be you know quote-unquote normal 
they won't have to face all of the things that the world will do to them if they transition. Mm-hmm. Now, if you become a woman now, now there's this whole other onslaught. Like your parents can, you know, they can say these things and then they can apologize and then they can be your parents again. But the world is never going to apologize for what it does to you, right? Mm-hmm. The, at least as some, as I've gotten older, I've realized like sitting here and waiting for people to come around to your side is a waste of time. Like, mm-hmm. and because part of it is we don't, the only shoes we can be in are our own. It's really hard to see things from another person's perspective because you don't know what that person's going through, right? And we can try to be mindful about it, but we can't help ourselves. That's just human nature to sort of just keep going the way that we are. And it takes a lot to pause and think like your parents didn't realize how convinced you were, not even convinced, but like that you felt to your core that you were a woman. And they thought as many parents do that, like, this is a phase they'll grow, they'll grow out of it. Like they're just hanging out with the wrong people or, you know, whatever it is. Um, Cause even as a kid growing up, I understand what you mean about like, this is what the girls do. And this is what the boys do. Our culture is very black and white about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, something as simple as me going to a like Samaj event in our community and playing basketball outside with the boys led to 30 minutes of being yelled at for not acting appropriately in public and me having hysterically, you know, crying meltdowns because I felt like, what did I do wrong? Like, I just wanted to play outside. And like, this is me as a kid at like eight, 10 years old, just like digging around outside. Like, what do you want me to do? And my mom was like, you should be inside, like serving tea and helping in the kitchen and like helping set up the food. And I was like, I'm eight. Right. I just want to play with my friends. Like, if that's cool with you. And, you know, she would make me feel so terrible about it. And I like, that's not even me trying to equate like the things I went through to your own. But like, even as something as minor and irrelevant as like what your kid did at a family function was enough to be criticized and just drawn out to what it didn't need to be. And at the same time, our culture also has temples dedicated to transgender individuals, right? Like we consider you as a person of God that you have been sent down, that you don't have to conform to the body or the two options that you had. Have have you faced any of that kind of like weird conflict our culture has where we, on one hand, we worship the transgender community. On the other hand, we really struggle to accept the whole LGBTQ realm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the reverence that is given to uh, the community, I think is in, on one hand beautiful, but the real lived experience is totally different. And, you know, this year, I think more than ever, um, I really had that light bulb moment with Navathri happening, right? And we're talking about divine feminine energy and Durga Ma and her nine, you know, avatars. And the fact that we worship this goddess, we worship her avatars. We have nine days associated for this. But then we go into the world and we practice patriarchy. We are misogynistic. We 
you know, all of these horrible things are happening to women, rape, assault, abuse, murder. Um, you know, there are still women that don't have access that have to wake up five in the morning to go use the restroom to hide or that don't have proper sanitary, um, things, you know, for the periods. And, and so looking at the trans experience and how on one side you're revered, but then the lived experience is not that it doesn't equal out to it. Like we're still fighting for rights. We're still (laughs) trying to normalize our identities. And I mean, we've come leaps and bounds in United States or in the Western world compared to over in the East and India. But that weird shift and split always just kind of got to me. And I, I never really understood why it is this way. And I, the only thing I can equate it to is, you know, colonization and, and how the West, the British, the Portuguese, um, you know, they came and they, they gave us these very rigid, strict binary rules and laws to kind of go by. And we've just been passing them down generations later, but yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a slippery slope, but I, I definitely think that we're getting to a better place. Um, you know, seeing section 377 happen, marriage equality is a big talk over in India uh, they've changed the laws for um, Hindu and, and Muslim brides to include trans women. So I'm hoping that that allows for us to get to a place where we really normalize the trans experience. I'm I'm ready to start seeing in the media, Bollywood, hiring trans actresses, right? Like, let's stop having cis men. There's one coming out with uh, Akshay Kumar, you know, it's like, how many more times can we have a satirical piece where we dress a cis man as a trans woman, as a joke, you know? I'm just ready for the Western world and the Eastern world to truly normalize the trans experience and and get away from using trans people as the butt of the joke Mm -hmm. and making us feel like we're undesirable. Because if we look at the world, especially, well... From my experience as a trans woman, dating men, primarily cis men, um, a lot more men are open or interested or attracted than the world would think, than they would even let on. You know, I would say nine out of 10 men that I've encountered that I've told I was trans were okay with it. Now, there were various degrees of it. I mean, not everyone was ready to marry me, but there are a lot more people that are more fluid than the world would think. And unfortunately, we're still holding on to like patriarchal, like colonial, old school, um, misogynistic, mm-hmm. transphobic, transphobia. It, it's so bizarre to me. Yeah. And I I think that is changing, like you said, especially as like our generation really starts to be able to objectively reflect on what like especially colonialism did to India. Because, I mean, how are you going to say a country, not a country, but like a, a country that is dominantly Hindu 
we came up with the Kama Sutra. We mm-hmm. are, as far as I know, the only religion with goddesses where women can be gods and not just men, right? They're not just mm-hmm. masculine forms of God. But then, like, we don't talk about sex. We have this massive struggle with the LGBTQ experience. And I think the progress is being made now that we can see, like, oh, colonialism happened with very, very conservative ideas, planted those seeds, planted a lot of other damage that they did. And we've only been independent of it, like, less than one generation. Mm-hmm. We're, I think we might be, like, one of the first generations that's truly free from the impact of colonialism because, I mean, my grandparents were part of India when we were still, you know, owned by England. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, my grand, yeah, my grandfather's as well. Um, yeah. Do you, this is another question I always have, like, when it comes to religion and then it being a trans woman and even, like, someone like me who just, like, married someone who's not Hindu had a really tough time, like, there was a point where I had to step away from just the religious aspect of it all because my whole life, that was what was used to control me, right? Like it was, Mm -hmm. we're Hindu. This is what we believe. This is how we live. This is who you're going to be. And it felt suffocating because I was Mm -hmm. like, I don't want to be a part of something that's this judgmental. And it wasn't until I stepped back and then objectively looked at Hinduism from my own like research and reading that I came around to like, oh, this is actually a religion that can really work for me and I can find, you know, some solace in. But it really had to come of my own accord and it took a lot of me like pushing it away. Do you have, like, have you gone through any of that? Yeah, it was a journey, honestly. And, you know, my family's really interesting because there's a lot of splits and shifts happening religiously. So we have Hindu, we have Christian, we had some people that were Catholic, we had Muslim. Um, and it was just this war because I would have, I remember I had an uncle that's Muslim that would talk down on like Christian relatives and teach me the Islamic Islamic way, right? And, and correct things that I would say and that I would do. And then... Hinduism always felt right to me, may always made the most sense to me. But, you know, my parents, my grandparents, they converted to Christianity. So then it was, you know, Christians talking down on Hinduism and making it seem like it's demonic because there's so many gods and that it's, you know, a bad thing to be worshiping the goddess. And, the, and so it was just always this war of like, what is actually right, right? And and I felt like with Christianity, a lot of it was led with fear. Um, yeah, it's very, I personally have found that it's very guilt-driven. Mm-hmm. And it just, I, I went to a Catholic school for college. And so like, it was everywhere. And even when they spoke about other religions, they would, because in, I don't know if it's Catholicism or Christianity, you're not allowed to acknowledge even the existence of other religions. Like you would you could acknowledge it existed, but it was with the underlying tone of, but make sure you know this is the correct religion and they're just like pretending over there. Mm-hmm. And I just found that really uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how it was for me. And um, you know, that's 
how I ended up in conversion therapy, right? So I was going to a Christian uh, high school and um, I eventually got withdrawn from the school because the kids were picking on me so bad. It just was really tough. And the principal basically said um, he would rather me leave than for kids, for parents to take their kids out of school because they don't want their kids going to school with the queer. And they then enrolled me in their homeschooling program and put me in uh, conversion therapy. And the conversion therapist was this um, Christian, you know, therapist. And it, I feel like religion was something I had to navigate and work through and figure out what made the most sense for me. And now I'm in a place where I feel at peace with my Hinduism um, and and my spirituality. But I think I didn't have that moment until my father's father passed away in 2017 um, when I started to feel a lot more connected to the Mandir and to um, Hinduism. And I decided to just finally get back into my spirituality and do what made the most sense for me and what felt right for me. Um, and so I've been on that path ever since. Yeah, I think religion's like an interesting one because when I, because most of my guests are, you know, in interracial relationships and very frequently you'll hear, you know, I'm not very religious. And mm -hmm. I've said it, I'm not, you know, I'm more spiritual than anything. And I sort of selectively choose the parts of Hinduism that work for me and then the parts that don't, I kind of just leave to the side. Um, Mindy Kaling recently put out a collection of essays um, and one of them is about Hinduism and she describes herself as I'm the fun kind of Hindu. I do the fun things and I participate in what works for me. And then like, you know, that's about as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Like that's where I'm at. But, you know, sometimes I do find like, I love going to the Mandir. I don't go very often, but I find it really peaceful and just like mm -hmm. very grounding. But it was something that took a lot of time because so much of my experience with it was so negative um, and just religion across the board. Yeah. Um, is conversion therapy still like, do people still try that? Like we're, they do. Because that's like what we call like praying the gay away, right? That's mm -hmm. like the offbeat term. Yeah, it's praying the gay way, but it's, it's various degrees of it. I mean, it can be super extreme to where they're, you know, actually electrocuting the gay way or doing crazy things to fix you. Um, it still happens. You know, in California, we had a conversation in 2018 and they just passed a law that you cannot um, solicit conversion therapy for anyone under the age of 18. So we just got there in 2018. So legally you can still offer conversion therapy for adults. And, you know, this happened back in Florida. This is 2003 when I was going through conversion therapy. Um, yeah, it, it still exists, unfortunately. And I'm sure in a state like Florida, they're not pushing for uh, the ban of it. Oh, Florida. There's so many thoughts on that state. I know. I know. Um, but like you said, when you now that you're older and you've been in the dating world and more men 
are accepting of the fact that you're a trans woman than most others others would assume or tell you otherwise mm-hmm. um what has the dating scene been like for you yeah it's been interesting it's been interesting um it's been an interesting journey you know i've been in transition for um 14 years and it's Started navigating dating two years, I think, into my transition. Um, 2008. So I started 2006. Yeah, 2008, I found the world of uh, transamory. And I, prior to that, I didn't believe uh, trans people could have relationships. I, I didn't think love was something that was possible because. I, the world was very binary. I knew gay, straight, and I heard of this thing called bisexual, but I didn't really know bisexual people. And for me, that was like the unicorn. I was like, if I can find a bisexual man, I'm golden because he's going to accept me. But someone who like was okay with someone being trans or looking for someone trans was just uh, beyond my comprehension. And so in 2008, you know, I started finding that there was a world of people that, um, primarily, you know, cis men who were interested in trans women, but it shifted the, the dynamic and it, it shifted my mindset because I started to realize why they were interested in trans women. So a lot of, cis men, uh, a lot of transamory, I uh, like to call it, it happens generally through like a sexual lens. Like a lot of the men at that time that I was meeting, um, or not really meeting, but talking to, or meeting online, um, discovered trans women through, you know, triple X magazines, triple X movies, things like that. Um, it generally had a sexual undertone to it and I started to categorize them. I started to start to uh, see a pattern that. Were you being fetishized? Being fetishized. And I didn't know that that existed. So, you know, at that time I saw men in three categories. One man or one type would reject me. One type would accept me. And then I would break down the acceptance. Either he saw me as a fetish or he saw me as an experiment or a guinea pig. And it was a while before I met people who broke out of that, you know, and and actually found people who truly wanted to be with a trans person and wanted to have a relationship with them. But it had been years. So from 2008 until 2013, it was a lot of fetishism going on and experimenting. And, um, you know, meeting guys, trying to date guys that either saw me as a fetish or in a or as an experiment, um, and that was tough because you know we all want love, we all want relationships, and I wanted the opportunity to have a relationship and be in love and all that stuff. And um, it's tough. I yeah, it's tough. But I think 2013 is when 
it, I started to meet guys um, that actually took trans women serious and were honest with themselves and that were going through their own journeys of coming out to their family and telling them that they like trans women and, you know, going to support groups and being advocates and allies for the trans community and really like standing by their, their girlfriend and, you know, being honest. Um, but it was a, yeah, it was a while. 2016, um, I, you know, was engaged, um, to a, a Gujarati guy. Um, and that was different because, you know, I always dreamt of like love and marriage and those things, but it got to a point where I was almost felt like this is not for me. Like it's not going to happen. You know, like I saw men as people that I was attracted to, but I didn't think that marriage was something that trans women received. I didn't see trans women married. I didn't see us in these lifelong relationships and getting to have the wedding and be the bride. And so I didn't think it was a possibility. And I just kind of, you know, wrote it off and decided I'm going to continue living my life. And I guess I'm just going to be an experiment and a fetish for these men. And, you know, but, um, 2016, I, you know, met this guy and he saw me as a prize and he was head over heels in love with me. And, you know, we got engaged. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, the family was an issue and, um, I eventually walked away because I didn't want to force him to choose me over his family. And I felt like if you chose, if he chose me, um, he may resent me in the future. And so, you know, I made that hard decision, but that was a beautiful thing. And there was so much that I learned from that situation in that relationship. And I needed to go through that to, after chasing men for so long and trying to obtain love, I finally found someone who pursued me, that wanted me, that saw me as the prize, who wanted to make me his wife. Um, and to know what so, love is, right? And to know what love is, yeah. And to know that it's out there and it's still possible for you because I know a lot of people that struggle with what you just described where, especially on the apps, because, you know, I have friends that are gay and they'll be on the apps and they're like, you know, it's a lot of weeding through the couples that are for them is looking for like a third, like they want to uh -huh. experiment and they want like a threesome. So like, you know, my girlfriend will be on the app and she's like, yeah, I'll match with a girl and she'll say she's looking for her and her boyfriend. And uh -huh. then it's like, no, thank you. And, you know, it's a lot of weeding through. And so it starts to feel objectifying um, and really discouraging. Very discouraging. Yeah. I I had a, a few moments where I was like, I'm so done with this. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, there was a guy that I dealt with for four years and he, I thought he was the love of my life. And, you know, we met at Florida State University. He was in, in, working on his doctorate. I was in, I was undergrad and I was like, this guy is it. I like, you know, he was so different. I, um, six, three blonde hair, blue eyes, longer hair, <laughs> like kind of a Tarzan feel. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know? Um, and I, I hung on to this situation ship for four years and 
looking back on it, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like this guy never gave me love. He never gave me the relationship that I wanted, you know, but I just kept hanging on because I felt something and I wanted him to one day see it. And I didn't understand that I was going about it wrong. And, um, you know, after the four years I went through this depression and I was just like, I hate men, screw men. Um, I'm going to be asexual or I'm going to try dating women and seeing, you know, maybe that will work. And I think every girl's been there. Yes. No matter where you (laughs) fall on that spectrum, we have all cut off men and decided we're dating women because they have feelings and they understand us and fuck guys. (laughs) Yes, that's how I felt. I was like, screw this guy. But then I found myself with another guy. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But it's great to know that, you know, you can have all of these things that, you know, all women get to have. You get to have love and you get to have heartbreak and relationships. And, you know, then, of course, you end up struggling with that other um, aspect that you brought up where you were engaged and then his family had a really hard time with it. And that's something every guest here can relate to is when you bring home your partner and your family is just not having it. And then it puts you guys in a really awkward and uncomfortable situation. And what are you willing to fight for? And who are you willing to fight for? And what kind of life do you want? But it takes a lot of self-worth to decide that this isn't going to work for you, that this isn't right for you, and to walk away because that is just as hard of a decision to make as choosing to stay with that person because Mm -hmm. that is what you want and that is what you deserve. But without that self-worth and the self-esteem, it's really tough. And a lot of women you see struggling or settling and putting up with things they don't need to put up with because they don't think they can find somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my journey for a long time, like just taking whatever I can get, you know, for me, I thought like a piece of a man was better than no man. And I just, I wanted so badly to be loved, but I didn't realize I had to love myself first. And I had to go through that journey of like self-acceptance, self-love, self-forgiveness so that I could start attracting better people. And I could learn how to vet through men and know the BS and know the guys that just want to hook up or want to waste my time. And I needed to go through that moment where I had someone who was so madly in love with me, wanted to spend the rest of their life with me for me to realize I can have this. Like, this is not just a fairy tale, you know? And I I want so many trans women to be able to have that experience where they're treasure they're cherished they're being pursued they're not chasing the guy the guy's pursuing them and there's no ambiguity with feelings and thoughts like he's clearly letting you know that he likes you he loves you he wants a life with you and I needed to go through that to finally realize um that that's what I should be striving for in relationships like that should be the standard you know I should be treasured just like any other woman because Prior to that, it was always dealing with these guys, being in the experiment, being, you know, something on the side, and then them leaving one day to get with a cis woman and build a family, like get marry her and build a family. And I always felt slighted. I was like, 
well, maybe this isn't for me. Like maybe trans women are just to experiment. Like, and then one day they wake up and they go live a normal life with a cis woman and they go have, you know, a, a wife and kids. And so I needed to go through a moment where I was like, actually, no, you are that woman for that person. Mm-hmm. You know, it does exist. Like we can find love. Yeah. And we can be, yeah, we can have that if we want that, if we want, you know, to be a wife and the mother and all those things. Exactly. Cause I mean, on the aspect of being a mother, like we have science now, like we don't have to worry about that. Like, hello. Mm-hmm. And then also, <laughs> like, you know, I feel like for so long, you I, f- I feel like in the trans community the goal for so long is to be the other gender right it's like you're just mm-hmm. fighting so hard to get to a point where you feel comfortable in your body and then it almost can feel like and correct me if I'm wrong where like how much more can I ask for because then to mm-hmm. ask for you know love and a relationship and a family that's like a whole other thing and you just spent the last you know 15 years just trying to find the body you want to be in Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder if that's what it can feel like where it's like, can how much more can I ask for, you know, mm-hmm. and then coming to terms like, no, like I can have these things like I can have a family and a relationship and, a you know, a husband or a wife and all of that, because that's if that's what you want, then like you should be able to have those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's been a learning journey and a process and I had to get to this point but I I'm so grateful to be here like I feel like this is the golden age for me like this is that moment of enlightenment enlightenment and awakening it's like I finally get it you know after 14 years after you know I just turned 31 I'm like oh my gosh it, it finally makes sense to me it's finally clicking um but yeah I think for the longest because of you know, issues growing up and stuff and mother, mom, mommy issues, daddy issues, you know, like that definitely plays a big part, um, at least in my journey, but also not having proper representation in the media, always seeing trans women shown in one light on Jerry Springer, like getting their wigs pulled off on Maury, holding up signs saying I'm a man or I'm a woman and the audience yelling out Maury, that's a man. Um, on cops getting arrested for prostitution. It was just horrible representation that I grew up with. So the idea of us even being normalized and then shown in, you know, happy monogamous relationships, I didn't have representation for that for so long. Um, You know, my first time seeing a trans woman on camera that wasn't uh, tricking a guy, that wasn't a prostitute, that wasn't, you know, playing the guessing game was Candace Kane on Dirty Sexy Money, but she was the mistress. She was like the woman on the side. So they never really gave us a chance to fantasize, right? Like we have Bollywood. We've been able to see all of these women portrayed as, you know, the girlfriend, the wife, the bride, the prize. But then for trans women, I didn't see it, you know? And so for so long, I just struggled with feeling like, well, maybe I am just going to be a a toy. I'm going to be a third. I'm going to be on the side. I'm going to be the mistress, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So media representation is also very important. And I hope, you know, we start creating more positive media that shows trans women 
as normal people, shows them in relationships, shows them being treasured and loved and yeah, and just doing all the things that everyone else gets to do because that's mm-hmm. what they want to do. You were you're part of Pantene, right? Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um I did a commercial for Pantene um last year, last yeah for the holiday. So it was called uh, Coming Home, I believe, with Pantene, and uh, that was an amazing moment. Um, yeah, you know. I talk about representation, but until that moment and, you know, with Masaba Masaba on Netflix, I never really saw a lot of uh, representation in the media of uh, someone who was of Afro-Indo-Caribbean experience, you know, like, and then to be Afro-Indo-Caribbean and trans. And I'm like, I'm on a commercial and I'm wearing a bindi and I'm wearing a sari and I'm going to... Diwali, like my my family's house for Diwali, like that was just like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah, that yeah. must have been so surreal. Like suddenly, it's almost like a big picture. Like you step back and you're like, oh my God, like where are we right now? Yeah. That is it super was, cool. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, What would you like to leave our listeners with? If you could leave them with one message, what would it be? My message would be compassion. It would be, you know, I I believe that I'm an an empath. I'm very empathetic. But I think if we lead with compassion, we would go so far. We need to remember that we're all in this experience together. It's the, the human experience. And be compassionate, be open-minded. Um, you know, there are people that have identities and journeys that are different from ours and that's okay. And that's beautiful. There's so much that we can learn from others. Um, have compassion, you know, for yourself, for your friends, for your family, for your kids. I mean, family members, I, I think if we lead with compassion, we can live an authentic life where people are not, in these secret situations, relationships, guys aren't sneaking off to be with trans women on the side while they have wife and kids at home. Trans women won't be murdered at these large rates. I mean, there's 31 accounted murders of trans folks in the United States this year. Who knows what those numbers look like that are, for the people that haven't been reported, you know? We look at a place like South America, they're in the hundreds every year. So it's like, we need to lead with compassion. If we have compassion for each other, we see the humanity in, in, in us all, we would be able to eradicate a lot of the misunderstanding, the homophobia, the transphobia, the misogyny, the patriarchy, and realize we're all just trying to head to this ideal of life, you know, happiness, you know, like we all kind of want the same things. We all have the same needs. We all need to be loved and cared for and sheltered and fed. And, um, yeah, I just say lead with compassion and, and it's so transformative when we let go and we just embrace people. Yeah. That's a beautiful message to leave people with. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. 
if people want to find you online, where can we find you? Yeah. Um, Google search Lana Patel and you'll find me. Um, I'm on Instagram, Lana Patel XOXO. And Lana Patel Beauty, that's my um, makeup artist page. I haven't been active on there for a while, but I think most of my social media is under Lana Patel XOXO. So if you just look that up, you'll find it or just look up Lana Patel. Oddly enough, there's a few Lana Patels out there. And I'm like, I thought I was the only one. I didn't know that was a common name. Um, Hopefully I get my verified check on Instagram. Come on, Instagram. Give me that verification. So I can, people know, like, I am Lana Patel. Yeah, and it's always in the show notes, guys, so you will find the correct Lana Patel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much again for coming on and sharing your story. That was a really fun and insightful and just uplifting conversation. Yeah, thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of But What Will People Say? If you did, leave us a review on iTunes. You can find me on Instagram at disha.mazeppa. You can email bwwpspodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, if you'd like to be a guest, if you have an interesting story to tell, definitely reach out. You can shop my Etsy shop at Disha Mazeppa Designs. And you can subscribe to my newsletter, Happy Mail, at patreon.com forward slash BWWPS. And I will see you guys next time. Bye. This podcast is hosted and produced by Disha Mystery Mazeppa. Music for the show was created by Crexwell. Crexwell.